Welcome to A Brief History of Rhyme. My name is Tim High, and on this podcast, we're going to explore uh, effective writing within songs, especially lyrics, and we're going to, at the same time, investigate that through the history of Roots music. In this episode, we're going to take a look at showing versus telling and how that plays itself out through the history of the ballad form in Roots music. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you enjoy the episode. Do you remember show and tell? I remember when I was in kindergarten. I was born in 1988, so this would have been 1993, 1994. And we did this exercise where everyone in the class had to bring in an item from home, get up in front of the class, and describe it. I was a big fan of this activity. Never felt like uh, classwork to me. It always felt like free time because this is what I was good at. Well, it turns out, you know, I learned many years later that there are very specific reasons that uh, we have show and tell in our education system. One of the reasons is that it encourages uh, kids to use descriptive language, especially in the context of full sentences. But as you get older and as you progress, it actually becomes more effective to show rather than tell. In fact, what if I could show you something without it being present just by describing what that thing is? Stephen King, in his book on writing, it's a fantastic book, describes writing as telepathy, the ability to project an image that is in the writer's mind, project that same image to the reader's mind. And as King says in his book, I'm sure if we got together and compared notes, Uh, The images would have a little bit of difference, maybe some small detailed differences, but the overarching picture would be the same. That is simply magic, simply magic. And in this episode, we're going to start peeling back the curtain and show you why uh, this kind of writing is effective, the specific devices uh, and strategies that go into effective writing. I want to, We're going to play three songs throughout the course of this episode that illustrate a specific technique. This first song I want you to listen to, it's going to sound a little campy. It's going to sound a little old. Some of you will recognize it. It was in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? One of the Coen's brothers' uh, best movies. Take a listen to the lyrics. Take a listen to what... Uh, the writer is saying in this song. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountains. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. 
Where the boxcars all are empty And the sun shines every day On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees The lemonade springs where the bluebird sings In the bleak rock candy mountains In the big rock candy mountains All the cops have wooden legs And the bulldogs all have rubber teeth And the hens lay soft-boiled eggs The farmer's trees are full of fruit And the barns are full of hay Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks, and the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats, and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey, too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. In the Big Rock Candy Mountains, the jails are made of tin, and you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a-going to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. I'll see you all this coming fall in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. So obviously, this song paints an extremely clear picture of this uh, mythical place the Big Rock Candy Mountains, right? But how does it do that? Well, it does it through showing you the place that the song is talking about, not telling you about it. Now, when we talk about showing versus telling, usually what we're talking about is significant details. And the reason we call them significant details because, one, they're detailed. When we talk about it being detailed, we want to activate the five senses, you know, we want to see things, hear things, touch things, smell things. Senses have such an important connection to memory. Think about it. You know, there are, uh, there are places that you probably have been that had a very particular smell. Have you ever smelled that same smell years later and instantly been transported to the place you associated that smell with? The same thing happens with description. So when we talk about a detail, that's really what we want. We want uh, sensory activation. Now, the reason we call a detail significant is because it says something deeper than what is actually being described. So let's take some examples from Big Rock Candy Mountains. The reason I chose this song to be our first song is because this song is just full of significant details, right? Song starts out, one evening as the sun went down and the jungle fires were burning, already it paints a pretty clear picture, right? I can see hobos gathered around a campfire. Uh, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning. Um, you know, I can see this picture in my head. And an important thing to point out, it doesn't take a lot of detail to describe something. If you give the really important details, the imagination will fill in the rest of the picture automatically. I mean, these are just, you know, um, stanzas, four lines. Um, this is a, a very typical ballad structure. 
Um, the only telling we're going to get in this song is in the Big Rock Candy Mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright. After that, the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night, right? The boxcars all are empty. The sun shines every day. The birds and the bees, the cigarette trees. What's the significance of these details? This sounds like a great place, right? Why does it sound like a great place? The sun shines every day. Uh, cigarette trees. You don't have to buy cigarettes. You can just pluck them off. The, everything that you you could want is just right there. You just uh, can take it off of the land. Moving down. In the Big Rock Candy Mountains, all the cops have wooden legs and all the bulldogs have rubber teeth. What's the significance of that detail? Well, it means if the cops have wooden legs, I can definitely outrun the cops and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth. I'm not afraid of getting bit by a bulldog. Which means I can pretty much do whatever I want. Right? That's what we mean when we say significance. The detail communicates something deeper. And this is the first um, kind of time that we're going to see a lot of effective writing is actually what's not said. A lot of times, um, you know, and this is what telling is, if Harry McClintock, the gentleman who wrote this song, if he just tells us, uh, oh, yeah, this land is great, has everything you need, that's not really exciting. It gets the point across. You know, it's the um, quickest way from A to B is a straight line, right? But it doesn't paint a picture. It's not engaging. It doesn't keep us listening. It doesn't make us laugh like a lot of lines in this song do. Uh, moving further through the song, the farmer's trees are full of fruit and the barns are full of hay. I mean, you can see the trees that are full of fruit. You can see the barns full of hay. It means you have a place to sleep every night. Uh, you can eat anytime you need to. Um, one of my favorite lines in this song is, you never change your socks and the little streams of alcohol come trickling down the rocks. And it's, you know, the streams aren't flowing, they're trickling. Uh, the word choices are very intentional and very specific and very significant. I can see the alcohol, you can get drunk anytime you want, right? So I, I, I think, you know, we've kind of shown how this song uses the significant details. I hope that you know, we have a good understanding of what a significant detail is. Um, we can take a look at the history of the song. So this is about a hobo's idea of paradise. And the theory is this actually plays off of a very old idea of this land of cocaine. In the medieval times, there was a poem. Uh, you can look it up. It's an extremely long poem, so I'm not going to read it on the podcast here. Um, but it was... The idea of this mythical land where all of the problems of the medieval peasants melt away, right? All of the earthly uh, indulgences you would want are available right to you. Now, the song was written, as we said, by Harry McClintock. Uh, he claims to have written the song in 1895 based on tales from his youth and a hoboing across the United States. His hobo name was Haywire Mac. Um, you should look up Harry McClintock. I could write a book on this guy's life. I mean, he traveled all around the world. He had a number of different jobs. Um, he was a big proponent of unions and workers' rights. His musical career 
really starting in the 1890s, moving into uh, the early and even mid-1900s. He recorded several different songs. This is one of his greatest hits and uh, has been covered a great number of times. So now that we've seen what significant details do, we're going to take a look at how they can evoke some deeper emotions. Just as, you know, sensory details are tied to memory, memory is tied to emotion. And as a result, you can use these details to express deep, deep emotion. In Big Rock Candy Mountains, I mean, it basically amounts to uh, the best hobo sales pitch that you'll ever hear. And it is masterfully written. And in the end, you know, the the primary purpose of the song, it feels like, at least for me, is to be fun. It's to make us laugh. This next song is going to take us a step further and communicate some emotional impact. This next song is done by Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers. Uh, the specific audio is from Pete Seeger's show, uh, Rainbow Quest, where Pete Seeger, one of the great folk heroes, uh, had a number of different folk artists on his show to showcase uh, their voice, their perspectives, and their music. So have a listen. Remember that one that uh, everybody loved? We were over in England recently. It's an old English folk song, I think. The Butcher Boy. Yeah. You, don't, you don't mind singing an English song? Oh, no. That's a good song. In fact, this song is known in America, I think, as uh, what? Tarry 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 Tarry. You sing it. It's, it's called uh, The Butcher Boy. <laughs> the Irish version. In London City where I did dwell A butcher boy I loved right well He courted me my life away But now with me he will not stay I wish, I wish I wish him I wish I was a man again, a again. I never will be till cherries grow on an ivy tree. I wish my baby was born and smiling on. Daddy's me and me poor girl to be dead and gone with the long green grass grown over me. She went upstairs to go to bed and calling to her mother said Give me a chair to lie sit down And a pen and ink to lie right down 
At every word she dropped a tear And every line cried Willie dear Oh, what a foolish girl was I To be led astray by a butcher boy He went upstairs and the door he broke He found her hanging from a rope He took his knife and he cut her down And in her pocket these words he found Oh, make my grave Large, wide, and deep Put a marble stone At my head and feet And in the middle A turtle dove That the world may know That I died for That's never never die. No, never, never die. Beautiful song. Mm. All the versions of it are great. Yeah, yes. There was a wartime version of that, something about I saw a man in a pub and he started telling me this sad tale. Real up-to-date. Very popular. Australian. That's right. It became very popular in England during the war. World War II. I, I think even it's a kind of a second cousin of a something Rudy Valet used to sing. There is a tavern in the town. There's a tavern in Yes, oh, my place, turtle dove, to show the world I died for love. Probably, probably a <laughs> Listen, cousin of that. Um, we better hit off after this. I hope you don't get your voice back, by the way, so we can come and have the you take uh, over the show. <laughs> come and have the tea every uh, every week. Now, a couple of things about this song. I left the dialogue in from the intro for um, for Rainbow Quest, right, where they talk about the history of the song. There's an American version called Terrytown. I left that in because we're going to get into that in a little bit with the history of the song, but first let's talk about the significant details because significant detail plays a much more meaningful role in this song than in Big Rock Candy Mountains. Certainly the emotion of this song is much more pronounced. I mean, at the end of this song, when the final line hits, that final word hits, you can just feel the weight, right? So let's go through the song. Let's look at some of the lyrics. Now, typically in these uh, ballad songs, we get a little bit of telling at the beginning. One of the limitations in lyrics is that you really only have so many words to tell your story. In a book, when you read a book, the uh, characterization, kind of description of what's going to happen in the story uh, is set up through significant details. In ballad structures, typically the first stanza will be um, very brief and it wants to let you know what's going on in the story very, very quickly. So the first stanza, in London City where I did dwell, a butcher boy I loved right well, he courted me my life away. But now with me, he will not stay. So very simple, 
gets the point across. We know what's happening in the story. Then the details come in. And it's important to note here, we get a little bit of uh, dialogue from the speaker. The speaker is this uh, girl who's been left by the butcher boy. We get a little bit of dialogue here. It says, I wish, I wish, I wish in vain. I wish I was a maid again. A maid again I ne'er will be till cherries grow on an ivy tree. So you would think, well, if, if the speaker of the song is is speaking dialogue directly to us, the listener, that must be telling, right? Not quite. One of the important things about dialogue is that very rarely in real life do people actually say what they mean. If you actually pay attention, most of the time, the real meaning of what someone is saying is implied. And it's implied here, too, through what she wants out of her life. I wish, I wish, I wish in vain. I wish I was a maid again. So she's, she wishes she was younger after she's been left by this boy. What she's really telling us is she feels so foolish for falling in love with this boy who ends up leaving her. And then the next line, which is an absolute killer. I wish my baby it was born and smiling on its daddy's knee. What does she want? She wants a family. She wants a husband, and she wants a child. And she has devoted a portion of her life, these precious years of her life, to this boy who, who throws them away. And we can feel the anguish of this character come through in these significant details. And she paints a very clear picture, doesn't she? I wish my baby was born and smiling on its daddy's knee. I wish my baby it was born and smiling on its daddy's knee. And me, poor girl, to be dead and gone with the long green grass growing over me. What is she telling us there? Well, she's telling us she had a baby. And something happened to it. Either she had a miscarriage. We don't know. She, she doesn't explicitly state that. Because it's not really important what happened to it. It's that the baby died. And she expresses, And me poor girl to be dead and gone with the long green grass growing over me. She says, I wish my baby was alive with its dad, even if it cost me my life. I mean, that is just heartbreaking. And she doesn't explicitly state that. It's in the details. She paints a picture for us. You know, she puts us, you know, through a comparison of the anguish she's going through. She makes us picture this baby on its daddy's knee and then takes it away. Right? And so we empathize with the character and feel the same emotions that she's feeling on some level. Now we get a perspective shift going into the next half of the song. And this is typical. We're going to go over the history of ballads. This is a good illustration of the history of ballads as well. We'll get into that in just a minute. Uh, typically, in some of these ballads, you do get a perspective shift. So when we talk about perspective, for anybody that's uh, not acquainted with this, 
when we talk about the first person, that's I did this, I did that. Second person is addressing someone. You did this, you did that. The third person is he did this, he did that. She did this, she did that. Right? So those are the three perspectives. Now we start in first person. She's saying in London City where I did well, I loved right well, or in first person. We flip to the third person halfway through the song. She went upstairs to go to bed and calling to her mother said, give me a chair till I sit down and a pen and ink till I write down. So she's going upstairs. She says to her mom, hey, could you get me a chair and a pen so I can sit and write for a little bit? And it sets up the rise in emotion for this song and the climax. At these are my my favorite two lines in this poem or in this uh, song. Sorry, at every word she dropped a tear, at every line cried Willie dear. Oh, what a foolish girl was I, to be led astray by a butcher boy. What a powerful image. A powerful image. And again, the significance of these details, communicating the anguish that she's going through. I'm, I don't know about you, I, I can hear her tears hitting the parchment. I can hear her moans of Willie Deer. A powerful, powerful image. And sung beautifully by Tommy Makem. He went upstairs and the door he broke. Even just that line. Right? And notice what's being left out. We don't know who he is. We don't know. It could be her father. In some versions of the song, it is her father. It could be the butcher boy. Right? Maybe there's a tragic return. She thought he left and he didn't leave and he comes back and it's too late. But again, it's not quite important. Is it? The song is about her and her anguish and the tragedy of her. And he breaks the door. Even just that, the door he broke gives a sense of urgency. The sense of, again, trying to stop this thing that's about to happen, but the, we're being carried inevitably towards this tragic ending. He found her hanging from a rope. He took his knife and cut her down. And in her pocket, these words he found. Again, the, the speaker of this song is showing us, he shows us her hanging from a rope. And in our minds, it puts us, even though it's written in the third person, puts us in the character's shoes. We are taking our knife out and cutting her down and finding these words in her pocket. And then the just, just brutal last stanza. Make my grave large, wide, and deep. Put a marble stone at my head and feet, and in the middle a turtle dove, that the world may know that I died for love. This is also very common in ballads. Notice that everything builds toward that last word in the last line. The entire song 
builds toward that one word, love. I mean, that that is just the craft at its best. So now that we've seen how the significant details evoke emotion within the song, a little bit of history on the song, this is a good illustration of the older ballad forms. So ballad, you know, when we talk about a ballad, ballads are thought of nowadays as slow songs, usually about love or sad songs, but it usually just means a slow song, maybe in a minor key, right? Well, in roots music and in folk music, it means something much more specific. It's a narrative that's set to music. The tradition really began with some of these ancient epics. You know, think of uh, when we talk about an epic, think Homer's The Odyssey, right? These long poems, these spoken word poems that would take days to perform. And sometimes they would be set to music. And it would take days to sing. Imagine that you are living in a village and a bard comes through the village. And he's going to perform one of these epics. And you listen to it for eight hours. Then everybody grabs dinner, goes to sleep. You wake up the next day and you finish watching it. It's like the olden times version of a Netflix binge. Right? Well, over time, these stories kind of got shortened. Yeah, compressed a little bit as we get into the medieval ages um, and towards the 1700s, the printing press is invented. It's a, I mean, the printing press being invented was a massive development in terms of the spread of different media, right? We talk about the effect of the internet. The effect of the printing press was massive, folks. Massive. What started to happen where these ballads would be printed on, they were called uh, broadsheets or broadsides. They were these large pieces of cheap paper. They'd print all the verses on them and you would be able to buy them. Now, there was no sheet music to go along with them, so how do you figure out the melody? Well, usually at the bottom it would tell you uh, the name of a song whose melody the words went to. Right, so it would reference a well-known song. Uh, these are a set of words. You can sing these words to this melody. And that was if you had a, a good ballad guy, right? If you had like a really good ballad guy, he would actually perform the melody for you so you knew what melody went with the words. And as a result, right, going back to the intro to this song, the Clancy Brothers say that there's an, an American version of this song called Terrytown. You got a lot of crossover you got a, a lot of different sets of words that go to the same melody. So there's this interconnectedness with a lot of these old ballads um, where they're all kind of cousins of each other, right? So we've got these, you know, chronologically, as we go through it, we've got these traditional ballads. You start with the epics, which are the really, really long narrative set to music. Those get compressed. They become traditional ballads. The traditional ballads were really more for the richer folk in town, right? Then the printing press comes along, we get broadsheet ballads. There's a, a bit of a divide. It's a little bit of splitting hairs because some traditional ballads were printed on broadsheets, 
um, but some ballads were exclusively broadsheet ballads, so it tends to be a little bit confusing. When we talk about a broadsheet ballad, we're talking about a ballad that was specifically composed to be on a broadsheet. Tends to be the split. So, yeah, epic, traditional, broadsheet ballads. Those get dispersed, and of course, there's still kind of an oral tradition, right? You tell your friends, hey, I just learned this great song. You show them the song, and then they show somebody else. That takes us chronologically up through the 1800s and into the 1900s. A lot of these ballads were performed by minstrel bands that uh, went around the country in the mid-1800s. We have more on those in a future podcast. So, Butcher's Boy, this one we just listened to, it, the history of it looks like it's an amalgam of several, several different broadsheet ballads. Uh, in reading about the history of this song, um, it looks like Tommy Makem learned the song from his mother. So again, kind of that oral tradition, right? Songs get passed down through families. I can think through my family. Um, my dad plays the banjo, introduced us to some of this older music, Ralph Stanley, Earl Scruggs. I can think in my family, um, I'll Fly Away, Oh Come Angel Band. Right, these songs get passed down. Now, as these ballads were developing, this kind of subgenres developed, right? Think about genres of movies. And people back then enjoyed the same kind of things we do today. This genre of ballads developed that was about murder. Right? We have the human race has always been obsessed with blood, you know, tales of battle and bloodshed or crime, right? Something very primal about that. If it bleeds, it leads. And these murder ballads developed in Europe and then uh, migrated over to America. There's a little bit of a cultural divide with these murder ballads. In European murder ballads, it, it seems like a lot of times um, someone will murder somebody else. And then there will be some kind of supernatural event. The ghost of the murdered person might come back and haunt the murderer. Um, there's a song, Pretty Polly, where the ghost of a murdered woman comes back and haunts the murderer and uh, causes him to get in a shipwreck so the murderer gets his justice. Right. So it tends to be a supernatural element to these European ballads. As those migrate over to America... Usually, the, the supernatural element gets taken out of it. And sometimes the murderer comes to justice, sometimes they don't. So we're going to hone in a little bit. We're going to take a listen to a murder ballad. Now, as these you know, murder ballads emerge, you know, and as we get from the 1800s into the 1900s, new genres of music develop as well and become available to the songwriter, and to the performer. One of these being the blues. Think about the blues. The blues is perfectly suited for a murder ballad. What other genre could you pick? So in this next song, takes us all the way up to the 1960s. We're going to listen to Bob Dylan's take of the blues and murder ballads combined. Listen to what he does with the lyrics. 
Alice Brown, he lived on the outside of town. Alice Brown, he lived on the outside of town. With his wife and five children and his cabin broken down. You look for work and money and you walk the ragged mile. You look for work and money and you walk the ragged mile. Your children are so hungry that they don't know how to smile. Your baby's eyes look crazy, they're a-tugging at your sleeve Your baby's eyes look crazy, they're a-tugging at your sleeve You walk the floor and wonder why with every breath you breathe The rats had got your flower, bad blood had got your mare The rats had got your flower, bad blood had got your mare. If there's anyone that knows, is there anyone that cares? He prayed to the Lord above, oh, please send you a friend. You prayed to the Lord above, oh, please send you a friend. Your empty pockets tell you that you ain't got no friend. Your babies are crying louder now, it's a pounding on your brain. Your babies are crying louder now, it's a pounding on your brain. Your wife screams of stabbing you like the dirty driving rain. Your grass is turning black, there's no water in your well. Your grass is turning black, there's no water in your well. You spent your last long dollar on seven shotgun shells. Way out in the wilderness, a cold coyote calls. Way out in the wilderness, a cold coyote calls. Your eyes fix on the shotgun that's hanging on the wall. Your brain is a bleeding and your legs can't seem to stand. Your brain is a bleeding and your legs can't seem to stand. Your eyes fix on a shotgun that you're holding in your hand. There's seven breezes blowing all around the cabin door. 
There's seven breezes blowing all around the cabin door Seven shots ring out like the ocean's pounding roar There's seven people dead on a South Dakota farm There's seven people dead on a South Dakota farm Somewhere in the distance there's seven new people born So here we can see or here, rather, we can hear the culmination of all the things that we've been talking about, right? We've seen the ballad form evolve all the way from the medieval times up through the 1900s, combine it with some blues and Dylan's masterful writing. And this is the end result that we get. Let's go through the song a little bit take a look at some of the uh, significant details that help to tell this heartbreaking story. The story is about uh, a farm in South Dakota. This is actually a real event that Dylan wrote about. He was a very topical songwriter, especially early in his career. Uh, Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll comes to mind, only a pawn in their game. These are written about real events, which is another folk tradition we'll take a look at in a future episode. Starts out, we get our, our very brief characterization, right? Hollis Brown, he lived on the outside of town with his wife and five children and his cabin fallen down. Or cabin broken down, depends on which version we, we're listening to. And that's all our, our exposition, is what they call it. Sets up the story. And we also get a perspective shift. That first stanza is in the third person. And he switches to second person for the rest of the song, putting us directly in the character's shoes. You looked for work and money, and you walked a ragged mile. Your children are so hungry that they don't know how to smile. The stanzas also follow the blues structure of having two repeated lines and then a third non-repeated line. Your baby's eyes look crazy. They're tugging at your sleeve. You walk the floor and wonder why with every breath you breathe. Again, it almost sounds like Dylan is telling here, right? But he's not. What's the point of that stanza? It's panic, right? It's not only wondering why. It, the character wonders why, but he feels the panic. What am I going to do? To fix this situation. How can I fix it? It feels like there's no way out. The rats have got your flower. Bad blood it got your mare. If there's anyone that knows. Is there anyone that cares? There's panic. Desperation. And everything it builds with every single stanza. Right? Your baby's crying louder now. It's pounding on your brain. Your wife's screams are stabbing you like the dirty driving rain. 
you know, everybody in the family is panicking, right? And everybody's lashing out at each other. This is where everything turns and the real horror sets in. Your grass is turning black. There's no water in your well. You spent your last long dollar on seven shotgun shells. And if you were paying attention, Hollis Brown lives with his wife and five children. I mean, that, that line tells you exactly, again, that foreshadowing where, uh, foreshadowing, if, if people aren't familiar with it, it's where the end of the story is hinted at during the story is the best way to think about it. Or even expressly told. Often this is a, a device used in tragedies so that we already know what's going to happen and we have to watch the story devolve towards that tragic end, right? And it's in this verse that the song turns and we realize what Hollis Brown is going to do and there's nothing we can do but watch and live it out. Way out in the wilderness, a cold coyote calls. Your eyes fix on the shotgun that's hanging on the wall. Your brain is a-bleeding and your legs can't seem to stand. Your eyes fixed on the shotgun that you're holding in your hand. Look at what he's doing. There's, it is only details, only details of what is going on in the story. And then it, the camera zooms out a little bit, right? Again, just like in Butcher Boy, where some of the some of the events are ignored and not explicitly explained, this one isn't either because we understand what's going on. Dylan only gives us the details that we need to see the picture, right? There's seven breezes blowing all around the cabin door. Seven shots ring out like the ocean's pounding roar. This verse doesn't tell you, it doesn't show you the actual event. It's much, much more effective than that. You just hear the shots ring out. And you know, don't you? You know exactly what happened. And then we see the aftermath, right? Comparing the, sens the sensory details, we hear the shots ring out, and then we see there's seven people dead on a South Dakota farm. And then Dylan, the master of understatement, somewheres in the distance, there's seven new people born. And all of that weight again falls on that last word, right? Born. And it's so understated. But the emotion of the song comes through loud and clear. Thanks so much for listening to A Brief History of Rhyme. Once again, I'm Tim High. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as TM High. We'll be back soon with our next episode. We'll see you then.